Hello, listeners, and welcome to the next episode of the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and with me today is David Thompson, a senior analyst with the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. He was the primary researcher and author of the 2016 reports In China's Shadow, Risky Business, and the 4X Effect. David received his undergraduate degree in political science and Chinese language and literature from the George Washington University. He speaks Mandarin and has lived in China, studying at Peking University. He'll be speaking with me today about North Korea's illicit trade networks and sanctions designed to bring North Korea to denuclearize. Before we get started, I need to tell you about our NK News subscription giveaway valued at $300. US One random reviewer on the iTunes or Apple podcast app per week will win that free membership. So do please review this episode and you might win. That will enable you to read all the stories that we refer to in the podcast as well as lots of other excellent information available at nknews.org. Okay, David, welcome and thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me. So should I call your organization the Center for Advanced Defense Studies or C4ADS or how do you like that to be said? Uh, we go by C4ADS, but I think both are equally good. Okay. So what kind of group is C4ADS? What does it actually do? So C4ADS is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. We're a nonprofit 501c3, and we do open source research into illicit networks around the world. Uh, that's everything from wildlife trafficking uh, to the North Korea uh, work that, that I do. Who funds the center? How, how does that work? So it's really a grab bag. Uh, it all depends on the projects, but it's everything from high net worth donors who are interested in uh, conservation and, and wildlife trafficking um, to different grant making organizations that are looking to make uh, impacts in different different spaces. Can a donor say, for example, I'd like to give you some money specifically for conservation or specifically for North Korea related research? So the research is actually analyst-driven. You know, one of the analysts will think of a project, they'll they'll try and put together a proof of concept and then pitch that to a donor that they think is going to be most interested in, in funding that. I understand. Okay. And what brings you to South Korea this week? So we like to get out of D.C. as much as possible to try and interface with people around the world to get a different view on some of the research that we're doing. Can you explain sort of the overall methodology of your research work? How do you do that? And how does it work doing it from a distance at, in D.C.? Uh, so all of our research is done uh, using open source methodology. Uh, so for us, open source is anything that is publicly or commercially available. So that can include, what, media reports? Right. So that's that's the whole gambit. We like to couch our research in as much official documentation as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's everything from official business registry forms to court documents to property records, etc. Well, is this a, a reliable method? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that uh, with the official documentation, you're working at a quasi-judicial standard. So all of the information comes back from a official source, whether that is a uh, state registry, a commercial database. Uh, and I think what's also most important is that the research is repeatable. Uh, I can give my thoughts on a specific network, but then I can also lay out the framework for how I found those findings and also the pathways in which that, that research can be repeated. All right. And why is it important to be doing this kind of research, especially in the case of North Korea? So I think one of the things that we're able to do is to provide information on some of these networks, which uh, many people have thought was only available in the realm of government. Uh, and so we're able to highlight some of the different illicit activities that are going on, but in a way that can be made public, uh, in a way that can be repeatable. People around the world can see that there are ways where we can identify some of this illicit activity, especially in the North Korea context. In our uh, very first NK News podcast episode, I interviewed uh, Professor Andrei Lankov, and uh, he said, based on his visit to Northeast China, that uh, North Korean trade in China is being choked off 
by sanctions and he expects to see a major downturn in North Korean living standards by the latter part of this year as a result. Of course, he was talking about cross-border trade uh, rather than international shipping. Could you give us an overall picture of how important shipping and trade is to the North Korean economy? Yeah, so we see that as one of the largest uh, revenue generation streams for the regime. It's something like half of the value of trade is, is done by ship. Any downturn in, in that activity is going to have a direct effect on uh, the bottom line for the regime. Now, of course, it, it's difficult to get any kind of overall bird's eye view of the North Korean economy. So how are we able to say that, that shipping provides half of the North Korean revenue? So for the North Korean context, a lot of the things that we try and do is to recreate information that we're not going to be able to get from North Korean domestic information. Obviously, you know, we'd love to get that data, but it's, you know, unobtainable. Uh, so what we are forced to do is to try to create the mirror image of that information. And so uh, one of the methods that we've used is uh, customs and trade records. And so, you know, we won't see the North Korean companies which are involved in uh, this type of activity, but you'll see the other side of things. So for example, we can look at the, the trade records in China to see how much uh, business is going on between China and North Korea and then derive from that the additional findings. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Now, can you give us a picture of how the current regime of UN sanctions against North Korea are actually supposed to work? So right now, there's been a lot of uh, movement in the sanctions regime, obviously, uh, with the passage of the new resolutions. Right now, what we see is a lot of the sanctions are targeting uh, sectoral bans, so trying to outright deny the regime from revenue generated by things like coal or iron ore or uh, seafood products, etc., Okay, now we have, of course, different kinds of uh, sanctions regimes. There's UN sanctions, there's unilateral sanctions. So could you give us a bit of a, a picture of uh, what that looks like? So I think that's a tough question to answer in terms of giving an overall image of what the, the total of all the sanctions programs are, are looking like. A lot of them are targeting different aspects of the regime's uh, illicit activity. Uh, so, for example, the, the, the sectoral bans are going to go after revenue streams, but there are also more targeted sanctions that are going to go after uh, specific illicit networks. So really within that uh, matrix, there's a lot of different pieces in play to try and prevent the regime from pursuing uh, its WMD program. So uh, which, folk, uh, which sanctions do you focus on in your research? So we like to look at the system kind of in two ways that are interlinked. Uh, on one side, the procurement aspect of these networks, the specific networks involved in trying to purchase restricted materials, whether that is for the WMD program or just broader sanctions violations such as luxury goods. And the other half is in the financial side of things. So looking to see the specific networks that North Korea is using to violate sanctions on the financial side, uh, that money being used to fund the procurement arm. Okay, so United Nations and U.S. unilateral sanctions. Correct. What would an effective sanctions regime look like? What would we expect to see if they were working as intended? Well, there are a lot of different outcomes for sanctions. I think there are a number of different answers to that question, and I think that is kind of hard to answer in terms of giving specifics. But there are a number of ways, I think, that the sanctions are being used to squeeze the regime. So that's, that's kind of a hard uh, one to answer. But would I be correct in saying that basically what we're hoping to see is that North Korea will cry uncle and say, okay, let's negotiate? Yeah, I think that the economic coercion that is kind of being put in place by some of these sanctions uh, should create the leverage in order to bring North Korea back to the table. Okay, how do sanctions often miss their targets? 
I think rather than missing their target, a more thorough approach would be making sure that there is equal enforcement across all jurisdictions. I think there's a lot of uh, issues that have been put in place in terms of making sure that there are uh, effective measures to enforce some of these sanctions. And I think rather than missing their target, if fully enforced, uh, the effect of the sanctions will be much greater. All right. Now, could you help our listeners to uh, understand a bit more just about what sanctions are and how they work? I understand there's primary sanctions and there's secondary sanctions. What what does that all mean? Primary sanctions are, you know, sanctions against entities themselves. And secondary sanctions, uh, like what we saw with uh, Dandong Hongxiang, uh, are sanctions uh, enforced against entities which are helping s- sanctioned entities evade sanctions, if that makes sense. So let me see if I understand this correctly. So if I'm a North Korean and I'm selling something and there's a, a mechanism in place to stop me selling that thing, that's a primary sanction against me. But if there's a, a, a mechanism that stops my trading partner from trading with me, that would be a secondary sanction. Correct. I think a lot of uh, the misunderstandings come in um, the scope and, and their intended effect. Again, there are many different ways that sanctions can be used to affect a target, whether that's in messaging or within creating that eco- economic coercion. Uh, and understanding the intended effect of what the specific sanction is, I think, is something that is often uh, misunderstood. The intended effect being, as we said, uh, to bring North Korea to the negotiating table. Correct. But within that, I think there's a couple different ways that that can be done. There's not really one overall type of sanction, I think what we see is that there are, are several different uh, subcategories to make that happen. And what did you mean about messaging? You said something about um, messaging being an important part of understanding sanctions correctly. Yeah, so I think what we see often is that there are many different entities uh, involved in, in sanctions enforcement, and that goes beyond the government level to you know people in the commercial sector. If uh, appropriate messaging is done in terms of signaling that this type of business is, is going to be banned by entities like the United Nations or the U.S. Treasury, it's going to increase the, the risk calculus for a lot of businesses that surround these entities and scare them off from providing commercial services for them. Now, when you say entities, you mean actually individuals as well as companies? Yeah, I think what you see within the sanctions designations is there are several different subcategories of uh, designations, whether that's against individuals, whether that's against companies or even vessels. Okay, now what do you say to people who argue that sanctions always hit the weakest members of a target state, if not exclusively, then at least first and foremost? I think it all depends on where the targeting happens. And especially with the North Korea context, what we're seeing is is most of the sanctions are going after regime elites. And so I think that targeting has been rather precise in some of the in some of the instances in which I, I don't think that that is necessarily going to be the case. Although, you know, looking at uh, Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong in recent pictures, uh, it doesn't seem like they're suffering too much. <laughs> no, not yet. Is it possible then to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate North Korean businesses? And is there any point in trying? I think North Korea provides kind of a, a complicated picture for that. Obviously, with uh, such a hierarchical top-down management style, there's a lot of things that become fungible. Even if part of North Korea's business empire is sanctioned, they can easily move things around internally in order to uh, remedy that by maybe pulling money from some an unsanctioned part of their uh, business empire. That makes it difficult then to uh, distinguish between different kinds of North Korean business entities, does it? Uh, it does. So is there a point in trying? Yes, given, I, given that it's fungible and, and money can be moved around, 
No, absolutely. I think that there is a lot of uh, economic leverage that the international community holds over North Korea. I think that even though there are complexities to some of the sanctions programs and, and some of the ways that the North Korean regime is structured, that doesn't mean that there aren't vulnerabilities inherent in its economic situation. And I think through sanctions, we can enforce them uh, in the right places. You can create that leverage in order to make the regime feel the pain of the international coercion. In uh, mentioning sectoral bans earlier, I think you mentioned uh, uh, maritime products, uh, fisheries and things like that. Yes. Uh, would you be opposed to a fish for daily necessities bartering program that allowed coastal villages to trade fish directly for food and other daily necessities? I think I would need to know a little bit more about any specifics for those programs. I think the important part here is that the sanctions, if enforced and if properly targeted, are going to hit the regime's bottom line uh, rather than the North Korean people's. What are the different kinds of uh, lists of people and companies that exist as part of the sanctions regime? So it all depends on on which you know list that you're going off of. There's the OFAC, specially designated nationals list. There's also the, the UN sanctions list. And then there are sublists like the Department of Commerce uh, entities list, which prevents trade from specific individuals that are, are not necessarily sanctioned, but included on those control lists. Uh, so there's a whole slew of different lists that are involved within enforcing uh, these international sanctions. Does Kim Jong-un himself appear on these lists? Kim Jong-un appears on the OFAC's SDN list. What's OFAC, sorry? OFAC is the Office of Foreign Asset Control. It's the arm of the Department of U.S. Treasury that is uh, responsible for uh, implementing and enforcing sanctions. Okay, now there are uh, a number of North Korean refugees living here in South Korea, about 20,000 now, and also living in other countries in the United States and Japan and Europe. And these people reportedly send money back to their families in the form of cash remittances through Chinese brokers. Would such payments be affected either intentionally or unintentionally by international sanctions? So often what we see is Chinese brokers playing a middleman role, uh, not just in uh, remittance payments, but in the illicit activity of uh, these overseas networks. Many of these pathways have been closed by international sanctions for entities that are working on behalf of sanctioned North Korean financial institutions. But how would that affect the, uh, the individual from sending money back to the family then? My understanding is that it would, it would close down those pathways. Which would not be targeting the elites then so much as the ordinary people. Well, it all depends on whether or not if the, the companies involved are doing the majority of their business for uh, the regime or for ordinary people. Okay. Uh, in your first report in China's shadow, you write about the Liaoning Hongshang Group. Sure. Uh, Dandong Hongshang was a large-scale uh, China-North Korea trading firm that offered a variety of different services for North Korea, everything from uh, trading coal to uh, daily necessities across the border. What's the status of that company now? Uh, that company has uh, since been shut down. It was found to have been acting as a financial proxy for Korea Kwamsung Bank, uh, a sanctioned financial institution. Was, was it the Chinese government that shut it down? So it was a, a, an action done in tandem between the Chinese government and the, the U.S. government. Uh, the U.S. government sanctioned Dandong Hongshang, as well as its management, including Ma Hong and the uh, Liaoning Public Security Bureau. Uh, Is this an example of what we would call a secondary sanction then? Yes. Dandong Hongshang was acting as a proxy on behalf of Korea Kwamsung Bank, a sanctioned financial institution, mm. uh, making payments for the regime overseas, subsequently was sanctioned. The owner was a uh, Chinese businesswoman named Ma Hong. And what's happened to her? It remains unclear. Uh, she was uh, put under investigation by uh, the Chinese. She's been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. 
but the exact whereabouts and activities of, of her uh, currently are unknown. Now, what about the uh, Chilbosan Hotel in Shenyang? That was also mentioned in your report as being the nexus of a number of different uh, illicit activities. We'd seen a number of reports of North Korean activity coming out of the Chilbosan Hotel. Uh, it was part of the Liaoning Hongshan Group empire owned jointly between Ma Hong as well as uh, the North Korean government. We'd seen reports. So it was a joint venture, was it? Yes. Okay. We'd seen reports that it was the headquarters for Bureau 121, the North Korean uh, hacker group. My understanding, yes, is that it has recently been shut down. Ha- do we have any uh, eyewitness reports to testify to that? Do we do we know what's happened to the building? Is it, is it literally shuttered? I, I haven't seen it. I think maybe we should stop by. Definitely. That does sound like an interesting, uh, an interesting place, yeah. All right, so just to uh, dive into your research methodology a little bit more, can you cite a specific example of how you tracked company A to B to North Korea? Is there a story you know, where maybe you couldn't find a link at first, but then you, you found something and you got a breakthrough that pulled all the info together and, and you, you had uh, a solid linkage? Sure, I think the best example of that would be from the network involved in, in risky business. So often these things don't happen linearly. They kind of happen in, in disparate uh, investigations. Uh, and so looking into the network surrounding the Jieshuan, uh, the ship season Egypt carrying RPGs from North Korea, we were able to pull back some of the ownership uh, records for both the ship itself and the company surrounding it. Uh, and we're able to identify that it was owned by a Chinese national named Sun Sedong. Simultaneously, we were looking into more large-scale trading companies uh, that were acting uh, in a similar fashion to Danong Hongshang, importing large quantities of North Korean natural resources into China and selling them. By looking through the records and looking at all of the official documentation, we were able to establish that there were uh, shared identifiers between the companies involved around Sun Sedong as well as the companies. Uh, uh, involved in uh, Dandong Zhirchong Metallic Material Co. Both groups have sub- subsequently been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury for assisting both in uh, North Korean uh, illicit overseas finance as well as uh, in uh, illicit procurement. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, 2003 case of a North Korean ship called the Bongsuho. Uh, I was living in Australia at the time, and this ship was uh, caught by the Australian Navy and forced to come into port in Sydney. Uh, it was suspected of having dropped off a 150 kilograms of high-grade Southeast Asian heroin onto the Australian coast. Have you ever heard of that case? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. And that ship was ultimately uh, impounded and then uh, taken offshore and sunk by the Australian Air Force. Mm Mm-hmm. As I said, I was living in Australia, so I, I met some of the sailors from the ship uh, at the, the prison where they were being held on remand waiting for trial. And while I was there, I met a man who had been sent from North Korea with a lot of money to hire a top-quality lawyer. He was apparently one of seven directors of the Bongsu Shipping Company uh, that said that they were a, uh, a privately held company, nothing to do with the government, seven directors. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if, if you or if your group had been doing research back then, you might have been able to find other ships and, and companies linked to those people, I I suppose. I think that would have been a fasting case to look at at the time. Anything in, involved in uh, that type of illicit shipping is something that's very interesting for us. And I would hope that we would have been able to find more at the time. Yeah, their cover story was that they were coming to Melbourne to buy a load of uh, secondhand vehicles to take and resell, I think, either in Indonesia or Malaysia. Uh, but they never actually came into port. They uh, faxed a cancellation of the order while offshore. So, uh, uh, the only thing that they were supposed to have done was to uh, to drop off that high-grade heroin. But the interesting thing was that they had two men on the ship who were sent in a rubber dinghy with the heroin 
to the coast. The weather was rough, the dinghy overturned, one man drowned and one man was left on shore and the police picked him up. But his name was not listed on the ship manifest and he wasn't actually North Korean, he was a Chinese national. So the North Koreans on the ship said, we don't know this man, nothing to do with us, you won't find any heroin here. If I recall correctly, the Australian Federal Police was never actually able to to prove the case in the court that uh, the North Korean ship had been the source of the heroin. So while they caught the people on shore with the heroin, the people on the ship were actually ultimately turned loose and sent back to North Korea. We see those kind of deceptive practices happening all the time in terms of North Korean shipping. You know, they know that people are, are watching and are, are trying to take as many steps as possible to remove themselves from the illicit activity. Yes, I think you mentioned in one of your reports that uh, you'll have to help me with the details here, but that somebody said, uh, please don't make any calls or send faxes relating to this because we don't want people to track what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, I think... What we see often is that the companies around uh, North Korean business know that there is a a large amount of of risk involved. And so by trying to put as many layers in between them and this activity as possible, they're trying to protect themselves. Now, the conclusion of your risky business report, it's very strong. You argue basically that North Korea's illicit financing and procurement system is vulnerable to to being dismantled. Uh, by effective use of sanctions. So do you think that North Korea won't be able to adjust if these key nodes or choke points are eliminated? No, I think that adaptation is something that the international community is always going to have to address. Uh, but I think that there are vulnerabilities inherent within, within this system uh, that allow for groups like you know the UN and uh, US Treasury to address it in a way that economic leverage can be used in order to uh, pressure the regime. Do you worry that sanctions will lead to every North Korean business searching out sketchy Chinese partners, perhaps creating an explosion in their illicit networks? I think that there is a level of centralization that's required in order for the regime to maintain oversight on its overseas activity. Because of this, there is a limit to the way that these uh, networks can be managed. So you, you think that there's not that much autonomy in the way that North Korean entities operate? I think that there are choke points that have to be maintained in order to have that top-down oversight. And if there are uh, an explosion in networks, the systems have become more and more inefficient, which is going to increase costs for the regime. Now, we know from your reports some creative ways in which North Korea tries to get around sanctions by, for example, exporting coal when sanctions forbid that. Uh, Could you remind our listeners why North Korea is prohibited by sanctions from exporting coal, specifically? Coal has been the the top revenue generating export for North Korea uh, for a while. I think uh, in 2016, prior to the sanctions, it was something like uh, 46% of uh, the revenue generated by North Korean exports. That type of revenue is something that's very important for the regime to maintain. And so using these different tactics uh, in order to continue to export coal in the face of sanctions is something that's very important. Okay, but unlike in the case of, say, uh, luxury goods or dual-use materials, coal is not a naughty product. Why is coal being targeted? Coal is being targeted for its effect on the regime's bottom line. If you can prevent the regime from bringing in, you know, over a billion dollars a year uh, from its sale, it's something that can really have a direct economic effect uh, on the regime's bottom line. So this is basically a very broad brush approach to uh, hurting North Korea economically. Correct. This is uh, an example of uh, some of the sectoral sanctions that we were talking about earlier. Okay. Now, can you tell us specifically about the recent case of the Yuyuan and the the Sky Angel? Sure. So that is uh, an example of North Korean sanctions adaptation that we're seeing in real time. The Yuyuan is a a Chinese ship that was loaded with coal in Wonsan port, uh, which had sailed up to the uh, eastern Russian port of Komsk 
uh, and unloaded its coal there. And we see that, you know, it wasn't alone in doing that. There were several North Korean flagships that had started uh, to drop their coal off as well at this, this small port that actually hadn't seen a North Korean flagship berth there in over, I think, two years. We then see uh, other ships, notably the, the Sky Angel uh, and, and a few others coming to pick up that same coal and deliver it to ports in uh, Japan and South Korea. We're seeing this added level of deception uh, within these coal exports kind of right as uh, the restrictions on coal are being put in place. Okay, so you take this coal to, to Russia, unload it from a, a Chinese ship that's come from North Korea, load it on a different ship, and now it looks like Russian coal. Correct. Okay, and, and then it can be sold anywhere in the world as Russian coal. Right, right. right. But it seems very inefficient, though, to be taking a large load of coal, which you have to, first of all, load it into a ship and then ship it somewhere, unload it from a ship, and then load it into a third ship. Aren't there a lot of costs involved here that make it financially not so worthwhile? I think so. And I think what that shows you is the value of these exports, even in the face of, of these sanctions. The, the need to raise this money for the regime is still there. And in addition, I think what you're seeing is the effect of sanctions in order to raise costs on the regime, right? Rather than one ship picking up the coal in North Korea and dropping it off in a foreign port, it now requires, you know, two or three ships. Do you want to take a guess at as to what uh, percentage of, of the price of coal is being lost in this uh, chicanery? I, I think that would be hard for me to say, but I think what's important is that is you know, the direct cost which is which is being applied to the regime by these sanctions. Okay, and, and was it uh, C4ADS that actually uncovered this case? Is that your research that brought it to light? I think that there were a number of groups involved in this. I, I don't think that we can take credit uh, solely. That these types of cases are important to uncover and, and make public in order for more people to understand what North Korea is doing. Okay, do we have any idea how big the overall North Korean merchant marine fleet is? I think that that's a hard question to answer. We have numbers of the amount of North Korean flagged vessels, uh, and that's somewhere in the, the range of around 400. Um, but what we see is that often there are foreign flagged vessels which are assisting North Korea either owned outright by North Korean linked entities or assisting the regime for uh, commercial benefit. Do you remember how many are mentioned specifically in, in your reports? In our initial report, the number is 147 ships. Uh, but those were within one degree of separation from uh, our uh, 39 uh, North Korean link initial fleet. Okay, so we, we know that there's 400, but there, there may be more. Oh, there's, there's many more. I think that the 400 number only reflects North Korean flag vessels. Ah. But the additional ships involved in assisting the regime, there could be maybe another 200 or 300. Wouldn't most North Korean ships be flagged as North Korean ships? Or would most of them actually be operating under a flag of another country? The North Korean flagships obviously are going to draw attention by the fact that they are North Korean flagged. And so what we see is if they're exporting coal within the region, they'll be North Korean flagged. Uh, but often what we see is ships traveling uh, farther afield are going to be using flags of convenience in order to uh, hide their ultimate beneficial ownership. And now, do we have any idea about how often North Korean ships uh, get bought or built or change hands? I mean, is it a very active fleet or are they running on old ships? Well, what we do see is that often these ships are moved in between uh, companies. Uh, they have their names changed often and, and even their flags change rather frequently. Is that easy to do, changing the flag of a, nation, uh, of a, of a ship? It's not too hard, I think. What we see, especially in the North Korean context, as ships are discovered, uh, as the, the companies behind them are wound up and disbanded, uh, they'll be moved 
to different companies, changed, have their names changed, uh, and, and sometimes even have their flags changed. Is that simply a paperwork process, just filing something in a different country and bang, you've got a new flag? Is it as simple as that? My understanding is yes. Okay, so you don't actually have to bring the ship to said country to register it and have an inspector or anything like that. It's just, just a matter of filing the right paperwork. No, and what we've seen actually is that certain North Korean commercial facilitators, which have come up over and over in, in different uh, UN panel of experts reports or media reports have actually acted as managers of uh, some of these flag registries in the past. Uh, okay. W- what are some of the most common flags of convenience that we've seen North Korean ships be uh, sailing under? So it's a it's a real mix. We've seen things uh, like uh, Togo, Cambodia, Tanzania, uh, Sierra Leone. Uh, there's really you know a, a whole number of different uh, flags that they've used. Are there any landlocked countries that are uh, flags of convenience? Uh, we've seen North Korean ships uh, fly under the Mongolian flag before mm. as well. Okay. None from Austria? <laughs> I don't think so. Or Switzerland? No? Okay. Now, your report, Risky Business, su- suggests that the chief or sole aim of North Korea's overseas networks is to circumvent international sanctions and continue its pursuit of nuclear weapons. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these networks serve as proxies for services that North Korea would be able to otherwise have if they if they weren't sanctioned because of their pursuit of nuclear weapons. So, for example, a lot of the financial networks are, are running solely because the North Korean financial system is cut off from uh, the broader international financial system. Now, Risky Business, the report, also uh, features a Chinese national named, uh, and forgive my pronunciation here, Fan Myon-chan. He is uh, described as a veteran North Korean commercial facilitator. Do we know what motivates his involvement in this risky business? Is it family ties, ideology, money-making? Uh, we don't know his, his motivations, um, but we have seen him in a number of instances of North Korean illicit activity. And is he believed to still be involved now, after your, even after your report's release? We've seen him on uh, a number of companies involved in different instances of, of North Korean illicit activity. Are you able to tell us anything about North Korea's involvement in uh, cryptocurrency or virtual currency mining, trading, and theft? Uh, these are not mentioned specifically in your reports, but they have been mentioned in some recent media reporting. For example, Priscilla Moriuccio, former U.S. National Security Agency officer has claimed that North Korea might have made as much as $201 million last year alone in cryptocurrency. Do you know anything about that? It's something that we're very interested in in looking into. It's not something that we have in the past addressed, but I think it's a great example of North Korean adaptation uh, in real time again, moving into these more modern ways to generate revenue. Okay, so we might see a report from C4ADS in future about uh, North Korea's cryptocurrency networks? Maybe. If you need someone to help you with writing a snappy title, uh, let me know, because I do like puns and alliteration. They're uh, my stock in trade. So uh, perfect. I'll, I'll be happy to help you. This week, Tuesday, during high-level talks between a visiting South Korean delegation and Kim Jong-un that took place in Pyongyang, we saw the announcement of a summit to come, an inter-Korean summit in late April. And on Friday morning, Seoul time, we now have an agreement from President Trump to meet with Kim Jong-un. To what extent do you think that effective use of sanctions have contributed to these recent developments? I think we'll have to wait and see uh, the outcome of the of the talks. Um, but I think that the impact of sanctions has been real. I'd be shocked if it hasn't uh, factored into the calculus of, of the North Korean regime. Page 12 of your Risky Business Report contains a diagram showing linkages and flows among uh, Chinese and North Korean entities. Uh, I encourage all of our listeners to go and have a look because that's a freely downloadable report, isn't it? Correct. From your website. Uh, but could you sort of walk us through that diagram, David, and t- t- just tell us, basically how things work in a big picture. 
Uh, so this diagram is is based off of what we saw with Danong Hongshang and the different roles that it was playing uh, for the North Korean regime. What we see is that there is both a licit side of this business, though now much of that has been restricted by UN sanctions, and an illicit side. And in both of those roles, Danong Hongshang was able to provide uh, different services. Uh, so in this particular diagram, it shows uh, the ways in which Danong Hongshang was able to serve as a commercial broker for North Korean imports, uh, in this case, especially uh, coal, uh, where it could generate that revenue, as well as satisfy the orders of North Korean trade representatives based in China. What would be some examples of licit North Korea trade be before, well, as you said, it's now been much uh, shrunk by the uh, recent sanctions, but what would it have been? So it would have been things like coal, iron ore, seafood products, clothing. We see a lot of these moved at volume by companies such as Danong Hongshang. So you know, hundreds of millions of dollars being moved through this company into Chinese markets on North Korea's behalf. Now, similarly, on page 14 of the same report, you have a, a diagram that shows how money and orders and goods flow between North Korea, China, and the rest of the world. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So what this uh, diagram represents is the illicit side of this business. There is a large amount of, of money generated by the uh, trade in goods such as coal and uh, iron ore that isn't sent back to North Korea. Rather, it goes through a system of financial proxies so that it can be used by North Korea's sanctioned financial institutions uh, around sanctions. And so what this diagram shows is how that process works. Money's moved from the accounts of companies like Dandong Hongshang into the accounts of front companies located in Hong Kong, but also around the world. And those, the money in those accounts is, is controlled by North Korean overseas agents, which use it to then procure a whole range of materials, uh, but have them sent back to Dandong Hongshang to be mixed in with the licit flow of goods that is going in between North Korea and China on, on the company's ships. We, we've got a couple of summits coming up in the next month or two. Uh, as we said just before, that that might be partly a function of uh, sanctions working. What would you like to see coming out of those talks? I think we'd all like to see some positive progress on the issue. Uh, the past year has seen a dramatic escalation in tensions, and I think any uh, tangible steps in order to uh, look for a nonviolent solution would be uh, welcomed by me. A good and positive note on which uh, to end our interview. Thank you again to our in-studio guest, David Thompson, from the Center for Advanced Defense Studies for coming on the NK News podcast. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast today was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random viewer on the iTunes or Apple podcast app per week will win a free NK News membership, so please review us after listening, and you might win. Hear me next time. <laughs>